Well, good morning, and uh, thank you uh, for uh, inviting me. Uh, your pastor has been very kind and gracious to invite me to uh, uh, speak as part of the uh, Advent, Advent season, and I'm uh, very glad and grateful to be uh, here and to be able to share in this whole process. It's a wonderful season, and a season in which we uh, have uh, much to uh, offer up thanks and express gratitude to God. Well, it's been given to me to uh, speak from uh, Matthew's Gospel and the second chapter. I'll be uh, speaking from verse, uh, verses 1 through 12. And uh, uh, before we actually turn to that passage, perhaps I can invite you to bow your heads with me and uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we are glad and grateful that uh, we can open the word and know that you speak to us through it. Above all of the voices that are a part of uh, the many documents of the Old and the New Testaments, there is a single voice, a powerful voice, that bears witness to the word which you sent and which we celebrate this season. The word that was with God, the word that was God, the word made flesh. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we can celebrate in this season for what it means to be followers of yours. And we ask, Heavenly Father, as we open up this word, that you would bless it to us. You would help us to reflect and meditate upon it, and that we would be able to say yes in all of the ways that you would guide us and direct us. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus and ask that your Holy Spirit would have free reign in our hearts and in our lives. Amen. A reading from uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, and verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down 
and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of God. Well, this passage, it has been said uh, in Matthew's account of the visit of the Magi to Jesus uh, is uh, one of those few passages that have um, um, claimed record in terms of uh, generating many, many different interpretations. Uh, as many verses as there are, there are multiples of questions. And probably as many uh, questions as we pose, there are multiple answers. And you see that as you read, as you study, as you reflect. You hear that as uh, Christmas carols are sung, we three kings of Orient are, and we ask ourselves, were they kings? There are so many questions. Um, who were the Magi? Were they kings? Uh, were they dream interpreters? Were they priests? Were they Gentile court astrologers? And of course, we could probably add a few uh, further um, options in terms of answer. I'm going to call them Gentile court astrologers. And uh, that for the time that we spend reflecting upon this passage. Another question, um, how many were there? Well, uh, later tradition uh, looks at the three gifts and says, obviously, there must have been three magi because there was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, uh, that is a late tradition, and it is probably unlikely that you should count gifts and then say as many givers as there were gifts. And even more perilous uh, to uh, feel tempted to name uh, the individuals who were giving the gifts. Uh, so questions, um, where in the east did they come from? Was it the Arabian desert? Was it Persia or was it uh, Babylon? Now, of course, uh, there are those that would uh, argue based upon the fact that it uh, seemed to be a long time from the first appearing of the star to the time that the uh, Magi or the wise men uh, appeared in Bethlehem and uh, uh, went to the house of uh, Jesus and Joseph and Mary and uh, offered their worship and their gifts. Uh, and so one might think Babylon, and perhaps that's correct, but we don't know for sure. Distance doesn't allow us the assured uh, um, uh, conclusion that uh, perhaps we would like. What was the heavenly light that led them to Jesus? Was it a conjunction of planets, a supernova, a comet, or what? And the answer is, we don't know. Though many have uh, tried to do um, astronomical and other kinds of calculations, uh, looked at star charts and planetary configurations through the course of time around the first century and have offered their theories and their hypotheses. Um, does this passage and the next that follows in the verses after uh, verse 12 uh, give us any indication or hint as to the actual time of Jesus' birth? Was it 1 BC? Was it right at that razor's edge between BC and AD? Or was it uh, 4 BC? Or was it perhaps earlier by a couple of years? 
I suspect it was, diff uh, it was um, earlier by a couple of years, perhaps 6 BC, but we're not sure. Were the gifts given to Jesus sim symbolically important? Uh, was the gold representative of royalty and frankincense of divinity? Was the myrrh uh, indicative of the passion or the burial or the um, embalming? Because, of course, uh, myrrh was used for embalming, but, um, of course, we didn't have that with Jesus. So um, many, many kinds of thoughts and reflections on this. I suspect the symbolism is far too um, profound and too deep and far too uh, subtle uh, in its notions uh, to um, qualify as uh, something that a first century reader would say, aha, obviously it's that. Um, I think though that the value of the gifts uh, indicates that the Magi were absolutely convinced that the one whom they asked the question of was indeed royalty. And because he was a royal, uh, he um, uh, merited uh, gifts that were fit for a king. And that I think we can be quite sure of. But for all that is unclear, for all that's uncertain about this passage, we can be very sure that Matthew holds his account to be historical and significant. It carries a great theme found throughout his gospel that Jesus was and is the promised Davidic king and the son of God who would not only shepherd Israel, but we learn as we turn page after page of the gospel of Matthew that he uh, would um, reign over the Gentiles as well by his light, as uh, Isaiah 60 and verse 3 says. Matthew challenges the Christian community to whom he writes and to us that the king's birth changes everything. And that's the theme. The king's birth changes everything. Now, I'm going to have a much more expansive um, canvas that I'll be painting on uh, than Faith Hill had when she was thinking just of the baby and just of that young girl and that young fellow and a few nuances and hints of the gospel. Of course, probably um, thinking about the constraints of her audience and such. But we want Matthew to speak to this. We want to understand how the king at his birth changed everything. And we have insight into that which helps us to understand and appreciate some of the things that are very important for us in our Christian walk today. So first off, uh, I would suggest to you um, that the uh, king's birth challenges the comfort of narrow prejudice. It challenges the comfort of narrow prejudice. Look at verses 1 and 2, and then a little bit further on at verses 9 through 12. What is stunning to me about our passage is that there are magi in the account of Jesus' birth. What are Gentile astrologers from a foreign court somewhere in the Far East who have read the stars for two years and traveled a great distance even doing 
there. I mean, you might expect some shepherds, you might expect some locals who drop by or who have suddenly been confronted by angelic beings and who show up to see this thing that's happened. But astrologers? This is very exotic, very strange. What is Matthew telling us? Matthew writes that the Magi showed up in the capital city of Jerusalem, probably their best guess at where the newborn, uh, who was the king of the Jews, uh, is likely to have been born. Um, Jewish thrones probably in the capital. Go to the capital. That may be where the royal family is. You can ask your question and perhaps get a, a little bit of a look-see into the bassinet and see the baby. They seek an audience with the current royal and ask him. Very logical. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews, they ask. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. This account is certainly true as a Jewish Christian would hardly have invented such a dangerous story about astrologers. My goodness. Matthew knows that the Greek Old Testament numbered astrologers as Daniel's sworn enemies. The Old Testament actually mocked astrology and uh, it had very severe things to say about astrologers who practiced such arts. And so why do we have magi here? There are, uh, in this circumstance, magi who are eager to worship the newborn king. And that is very important. Matthew tells us that the good news about Jesus is for everyone, without exception, and uh, not restricted to those who suit the comfort of religious people who count themselves insiders. I suspect that we, if, if we were in the company of astrologers or if we were uh, around somebody who is uh, doing new agey kinds of things, we would not feel especially comfortable but Matthew is saying this good news is big good news. It speaks to all men and women, young people and older people. It is an important message that has a reach that goes east and west and north and south and speaks to all humanity. Imagine. God, who is the maker of stars, was using elements of his natural revelation to draw these men to see his son. That is a missionary God. That is a missionary Christ. King not just of the Jews, but king of everyone. Matthew writes that when they saw Jesus, they were overjoyed. Literally, they rejoiced with an exceedingly great joy. Falling down before him, they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, worshiping him. 
Matthew himself knows something of discomfort. Of course, uh, he was a man who um, had an occupation that was not popular with fellow Jews. He was a tax collector. And we actually read about him, uh, not knowing the author, because the author hasn't told us, but hinted at in a number of ways. And of course, tradition helping us, we know that Matthew wrote uh, the first gospel and um, have reasonable assurance of that. Um, but it talks about Matthew, um, who experienced alienation from the religious community because he was a tax collector. When Jesus saw him one day sitting at his booth taking taxes and tolls from fellow Jews for the Romans, Jesus came up to him and said, follow me. Follow me. And Matthew followed, becoming one of the twelve apostles. Tax collectors can become disciples of Jesus. Tax collectors can become individuals of great um, responsibility and great opportunity in the gospel to proclaim it and to teach it and to model it to the benefit of Christian communities. And after all, what are we doing as we read scripture here? We are reading something that was written by someone whose interest was to teach the community, to instruct and to help the community to understand what are the responsibilities of following the king. Later, Jesus actually had to shelter Matthew and others like him from the criticism of the Jewish religious leaders who found fault in Jesus' associations. He gets together with tax collectors and sinners. Well, Jesus the king had some things to say about who he had come for. He said, I didn't come for folks who were well. I came as a physician, as it were, to help those who were sick. My interest is to claim those things that are lost to my heavenly Father, which are his possession, and to bring them back. That was his mission. Jesus was clear that his focus, his peculiar focus, during the time of his earthly ministry was to the lost sheep of Israel. He says that at Matthew 15 and verse 24. But in the face of need and in the presence of faith, he had compassion even on Gentile outsiders, like the Roman centurion that we read about in Matthew chapter 8. And the Canaanite woman who begged and pleaded that Jesus would help her daughter out of love for her, uh, she exposed herself to all of the differences and the discomforts of pleading as a Canaanite uh, before Jews. And of course, we know the history of uh, the Canaanite people and uh, the Jewish people. A troubled relationship. And in both cases, Jesus was astonished by their faith. And he said, let it be to you in accordance with your faith. The king of everyone. And not just a few or some. At the end of his gospel, Matthew recalls the final words of Jesus that we know as the Great Commission. Where are they to go after he declares that he has authority to command 
authority to fulfill and achieve through the agency of his followers? Well, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. He is the king of everyone, and he bids his servants obey him and proclaim the gospel to whoever they meet and wherever they go. John Stott, uh, that great Christian teacher, has well said that the gospel is not merely ethnic. It's cosmic. It's cosmic. It deserves our broadest proclamation. And we must believe that just as God was drawing the Magi to the worship of His Son, He will uh, long before we arrive on the scene of any kind of interaction, he will already be preparing the hearts and the minds of a broad range of people for his gospel. He's already there working on people. Far in the east, far in the west, the north and the south, wherever people are, God is searching for them. He's doing it through uh, the agency of his people who are scattered far and wide, who have gone in accordance with the Great Commission, and he also uses what immediate means are necessary. And we have heard stories of the mission field of individuals who have long prepared for the arrival of someone who would speak words to them, and they have built a structure, and they are waiting. I remember hearing that from... Uh, uh, a, um, a missionary, and it was stunning to listen to that. His servants are protected, his servants are energized, his servants are sent out, and they are called to proclaim. No matter how unlikely these people might be, whether they're astrologers or whether they're just neighbors, perhaps from a different culture, we must be faithful and tell them about the king. Remember what I said earlier, the birth of the king changes everything, it challenges the comfort of narrow prejudice. A second thing that I learned from this passage is that the arrival of the king, uh, whose uh, birth we celebrate, challenges the hostility of a selfish control. The hostility of a selfish control. Look at verses 3 through 8. The question that the Magi asked seems innocent enough. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? It wasn't. When King Herod heard this, verse 3 says, he was disturbed. He was deeply, deeply troubled. And all of Jerusalem were troubled with him. The reason is in the word born. Born carries with it a world of trouble for Herod. You see, Herod the Great was not a Jew born to the throne of Judea. As we look at his history, as it's laid out in the contemporary sources, we see that he was born an Idumean. In 73 BC, he was a convert to Judaism. He was not a born Jew. In 40 BC, 
he was given nominal kingship in Judea by the Roman Senate. But it was not quite a kingdom at that point. It was a fractured and failed kingdom in many respects. And what he did was he made war against the people in that area until in 37 he had suppressed all opposition and he ruled with a rod of iron. He was a tough man, authoritarian. I think it's not unfair to say he was a cruel man. Death and destruction were his signature as he came to the kingship in its reality and began, began actually to rule. And uh, amongst the uh, damage that was done, well, there was much damage to Jerusalem and there was damage to the temple. He thought that perhaps to endear himself to his subjects, he would undertake a massive rebuilding program and um, do a complete architectural overwrite of the, um, uh, the uh, temple um, so that um, um, perhaps he could uh, curry the favor of the Jewish people for having not simply restored it, but beautified it, increased it, and made it a wonder of the world that people all over the Mediterranean came to see. Herod was a builder. And he fancied himself perhaps in the building as another Solomon. Or perhaps he hoped that people would think of him that way. Always striving, always hoping uh, that the things were, that were a detriment to his kingship might be redressed in some way, might be altered, that people would love him instead of hating him. That people would uh, not uh, love him simply because they feared him, but because there was a genuine uh, regard for him. That they did see him as their king. In his later years, uh, which were dominated by depression and paranoia, he was given to ruthless acts of cruelty, including killing rivals, not only in the government, but also in his own family. He actually had his wife, Mary Amney, um, executed, as well as several of his sons, because he believed them to be plotting to overthrow him. And he held on uh, to his kingship uh, very, very tightly. And even at the rumor of hostility towards it, he lashed out. He'd even planned to execute hundreds of Jewish leaders to increase the number of those who would mourn him on the date of his death, that they would die on the anniversary of his death. Happily, that did not happen. Um, but what a terrible plan to be popular, to have many people mourning at your funeral, not because they're mourning you, but because they're mourning the people that you killed. How terrible. To hear of, quote, uh, the one who has been born king was not good news to him. As one born of the line of Judah, um, Jesus claimed to kingship had far greater legitimacy. In fact, infinitely so, because he was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. This would be a call for Herod to engage in conflict. 
And that is what he set himself to do. All Jerusalem would have been in turmoil as well because it would mean more instability, more violence from the existing king, more death and more destruction. And that's not what they wanted. But it was clear to Herod in his own mind that there could not be two kings. Only one. And his resolve was to be that king and to do away with the newborn king that the Magi had announced. The actions Herod takes are a cynical ploy to gather information on the infant Jesus to arrange for his death. He convened the Jewish high priests and the teachers of the law to inquire after the place uh, where the scriptures said the Messiah, and Herod would only uh, call him the Messiah. He certainly wouldn't call him the child king, but where the Messiah would be born. And of course, they replied that he was to be born in Bethlehem of Judah, uh, six miles south of Jerusalem. Herod further met secretly with the Magi at night to find out the exact time the star had appeared, verse 7 tells us. And that was in order to calculate the age of the child to better target him for assassination. We have to understand that this is all subterfuge. It's all smoke and mirrors to hide a plan to destroy the child that was announced as the newborn king. And he solicited the cooperation, the unwitting cooperation of the Magi um, by um, asking them to find Jesus and report back so that Herod might, and to quote him, worship him too. A deep cynicism. And of course we see uh, the ominous threat uh, as it's fulfilled in the death of uh, youngsters in the town of Bethlehem. Um, and that happening after a dream in which Joseph was warned of the danger and fled the town and went to Egypt. Outside of the Magi, who ironically were outsiders, no one went to Bethlehem to worship the child Jesus. Consistent to this reality, John says that the word who was the light of the world was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. A king refused because hands were full with other things. And instead of emptying them and holding on to the treasure of the new king, people kept holding on to the old things. Power, glory, wealth, whatever it is. And today, people still hold what they hold in their hands and refuse to relinquish that in favor of following the king. Jewish leaders and those best informed as to the prophecies of Scripture who should have been awaiting the legitimate king of God's choosing were either indifferent or enabling of Jesus' destruction at the hands of Herod by disclosing the prophecy and probably knowing full well what Herod's intention was. 
What can we say as we reflect on this passage, thinking about it all at once in terms of where it goes for us today? Matthew's words to me this morning in the different reactions to the birth of Jesus in this passage is that change is needed. Change is needed. At the birth of the king, everything is different. Everything is changed. But change is still necessary because the birth of the king comes to us and we need to change. God is about the business of calling the whole world to submit to his son. And that is still the plan today. This has not changed. The fact that there are Gentile astrologers searching for Jesus tells me that Abraham's promise that through Jesus all the nations would be blessed still holds. It is a cosmic gospel and it calls to the ends of the earth. Unusual people will come. Unconventional people will sit in the pews when COVID is over or will gather in their unconventionality as we Zoom with one another. Because that's what the gospel does. It claims people in their need, whoever they are and wherever they are. These unusual people, these unconventional people, these diverse people will answer God's call to acknowledge and worship Jesus as King and Savior, giving Him their all. I ought not to be surprised by this, nor ought you to be surprised. But rather, we should lean into that reality, expecting always to be surprised by what God does. That as we turn to our neighbors on either side of us, as we turn uh, to our um, workmates either side of us, as we turn to whoever we sit by or work with or uh, live in the same home with uh, as family uh, or congregate with as friends, uh, we should expect to be surprised at the variance, the difference, the unusualness which approximates heaven. A great company uh, that epitomize all of the differences and yet one. Servants, followers, people of the kingdom. Finally, there cannot be two kings. There cannot be two kings. I remember a conversation that I had with some non-Christian friends. Uh, we would get together with them on a regular basis, probably as much as uh, once a month and sometimes even more. It was a golden opportunity to share the gospel uh, in the ways that you can when you've got non-Christian friends and you want to be both respectful and insistent. But I remember it was probably a Christmas time. We were sitting around a dinner table and... Uh, one of the friends actually announced, you know, I, I, um, I, I have control issues. I want to be in control and I don't want God to be in control. And that's the way it was said. It was shocking and it stopped the conversation. 
uh, and then gradually things worked out. There was heartache in our, in our souls when we heard that. I have control issues. I want to be in control. I don't want God to be in control. Jesus actually taught the reality that there cannot be two kings a little bit later on. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. There are a lot of things that want to be king of your life. There are a lot of things that you want to be in control of that would uh, keep you from actually naming Jesus as your king. Uh, one of those is money or things. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Herod wouldn't allow two kings. He had control issues. He wanted to be the king. And it was at the cost of trying to assassinate the king of kings. Today we are called to see the peril of saying, I want to be in control. And not only see it for what it is, but also to set it aside as unworthy. Instead declaring, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. When it arose, and we have come to worship. I hope that's in your heart in this season. I hope that you will be adventuresome in order to see what God is doing all around and will move in and tell the story of Jesus in this season to those who have perhaps never heard it before. And that as well, you will check to see uh, that the right one is in charge and in control in your life. God bless you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've been able to spend in your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to remember how important it was for Matthew that he would tell the story of all of the unusual things that attended the coming of your son, your son. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would bring this to our remembrance as we move about in this Christmas season, this unusual 2020. We ask, Heavenly Father, that no matter the restrictions and the constraints upon us, that you would help us to be creative and you would help us to be bold in the same way that the Magi were bold and creative and pursued the king in order to acknowledge him and worship him. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to be filled with your gospel and share it with others. Naming ourselves servants of the king who are fully happy in your kingship and no other. Amen.